Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Let us pray. Father, we thank you um, for, for being God. We thank you, Father, for your grace that allowed us to be here another Sunday, God, another opportunity to worship you, Lord, and to be with you. And so, Father, I pray today, God, that through your word, God, that we would have right perspective. Looking back, Lord, I pray this morning that before we look forward to the next year, let us look back over this year, God, and say thank you for all that you've done for us, Father. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning, God, that Christ, your son, would be um, would be glorified through our time together, through our studying together. God, I pray that through your word we can be transformed, God. I pray that we would have a spirit of gratefulness and thanksgiving, God, that although things may not be perfect, you still are a perfect God. That although things may not be good according to our standards, you are still good. And so, Father, we just thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to worship you freely, God. And so, Lord, I just thank you. I praise you. We pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is A Reason to Rejoice. A Reason a reason to Rejoice. I've been doing my own personal mental survey for the last few weeks, asking different people about how they felt about 2019. From everyone I talked to, from pastors to unbelievers, the overwhelming consensus was that 2019 has been Somewhat, a diff- somewhat of a difficult year. For some people, there were a lot of victories, but then there were some defeats and some setbacks. Um, for some people, they experienced defeat and then they experienced triumph. Um, but no matter where you find yourself in the spectrum, if your year was hard, I think what Paul wants to point out for us today is that there is still a reason to rejoice whether you obtained your goals or not. Our disposition as believers does not have to be based on whether we accomplish what we set out to accomplish. If we feel as believers like a failure or if parts of our lives don't look like we expected it to look when the year started, all hope is not lost. This is where, for us, a fundamental understanding of what we believe about God and what he says about us comes into play. This is where good theology would breed uh, a right perspective for the Christian. This is why we have to be intentional at the outset of a year to make sure that we are engaging with God through prayer and with studying his word. We have to study God's word so that our thoughts can be shaped by what he says and not by what we feel. Because oftentimes, if we live this life based on what we feel, then our whole life will be a mess. Because oftentimes, our feelings don't tell us the truth. Our feelings may tell us the facts, but our feelings don't tell us the truth because the truth is not based on what we experience. The truth is based on what God has said in his word. And so for us, we have to ground our lives in solid, in a solid understanding of what God says in his word. The reality is, is that in this life, At times, things will be bad, and at times, the picture of our lives may be disappointing, but the truth 
of the matter is this. Everything that we see and everything that we experience in our lives does not supersede what God has said in his word. That's why we have to ground our lives in the word of God. And truthfully, the apostle Paul had painted a very unpleasant picture about things according to the Romans, Roman believers. Paul paints this picture in the first three chapters of the book of Romans of, of, of darkness that was on the hearts of God's people. Paul saw that things were not pleasant with the people of God. And so Paul's perspective about this is, although things may look bleak, although your condition as a sinner may not be good, things are still good, not because of you, but because of who God is. And so we have to understand, it's not about what we think about ourselves, it's about what God thinks about us. We have to ground our reality in what thus saith the Lord. And so what Paul does is he teaches this doctrine in the first three chapters of the book of Romans called justification by faith. Now, you may say, Pastor, why do I need to know this and why do I need to know theology? You need to understand what justification by faith is so that you can know why you are saved. Do you know that you are not saved by your own merit? Do you know that you are not saved because you are an inherently good person? You are not saved simply because you believe, but you are saved by what God has done. You are not righteous because you are righteous in and of itself. You are righteous because God has declared that you are righteous. And so oftentimes we can never appreciate the nature of our salvation unless we know what we've been saved from. And so that's why it's important to understand the totality of the gospel and the, the idea or the doctrine of justification by faith explains that to us. But before Paul gets to uh, justification by faith, Paul first paints the picture of why it's necessary. If you read Romans chapter 3, here's what Paul has to say about the human condition. He says, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together we have all become worthless. No one does good. Paul is essentially saying that we can't do good even if we wanted to because even our good is tainted by false motives. That, that even when we do something good, in a way we do it because it brings glory back to us. And so Paul says, in and of ourselves, we are not good. We are sinners by nature. I know that sounds unpopular in this culture where we talk about sin in the church, but the Bible gives us a diagnosis about our lives, and the Bible diagnosis about our lives is that we are sinners. Remember it says this in Romans 3, Romans chapter 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice it didn't say some people have sinned and fallen short. It says all have fallen short. Everybody has fallen short. We are all sinners. We're all helpless under the power of sin. And here's the problem with that, though. Here's why justification is necessary, because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That the wages of sin is death. And why is the wages of sin death? It means that God can't stand sin and God can't overlook sin, even if we do. And so what does God have to do with sin? God has to kill it. So when God looks at sin, God is not like, man, I can't, I, I just, I can avoid that. I can just look past that. No, God has to deal with sin. God has to punish sin. So what has to happen if we are sinners, but God can't stand sin? What does that mean for us? That that's not a beautiful, that's not good news. That's actually bad news. That's actually bad news. But the good news is this, is that although that was our condition, God didn't leave us in that condition. God decided to do something about it. Enter in Jesus. And so here's the thing. On the cross, Jesus stood 
in our place and God poured out the wrath that we deserve on his innocent son. And so on the cross, your sins and my sins were what the Bible calls imputed or they were given to Jesus on the cross. But here's the caveat. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although Christ took on my sin on the cross, God transferred his righteousness onto me. And so he takes on my sin and I get his righteousness. What kind of deal is that? What kind of, can you imagine walking into the bank and you don't get your account, but they pull money from Shaq's account? That's, that's a good deal. That's wonderful. That changes the outlook of my life completely. Everything is good. Student loan, gone. Mortgage, gone. Car note, gone. Everything gone because it changes the outcome, and this is what Christ has done for us. So while our condition looked bleak, it was dark. God didn't leave us there. He did something about it. And so when Christ takes on our sin and we get his righteousness, what that means for us is that we are completely forgiven from our offenses and we are no longer liable to be punished for our sins, past, present, and the future. And so when we think about justification by faith, remember it has justice in it, justification by faith. It is a legal declaration where God has declared the ungodly to be righteous in his sight, but not on the basis of their works, but on the basis on the works of Christ. So we're not righteous when God calls us righteous, we're not righteous because we're righteous. We're righteous because we got Christ's righteousness. This was the gift of God to us. But being declared legally righteous does not mean that it changes your internal nature. There's a, there's a, a famous celebrity that I will not name because I don't throw shade at nobody. Um, there's a famous celebrity who went to trial, I think it's around 95, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. He went to trial... All the evidence pointed to a guilty verdict, but he had the right legal defense. And because of having the right legal defense, although the evidence said one thing, he was called not guilty. Now that changed his status before the judge. In the judicial system, he is not guilty. Although he may have committed a crime, he's not guilty, right? That's what God does for us. But after he got off that one time, he found himself in trouble again years later. Because the, when, when God changes our status from guilty to not guilty, it doesn't necessarily change our internal nature. So I might get off, but it doesn't change who I am. So that's why sometimes somebody can go to court or go to trial, get off, and go back and commit the same crime again. Because the, just the verdict of not guilty didn't change their internal nature. That's what regeneration is for. So we as believers, positionally before God, we are righteous, but God gives us the Holy Spirit to work on our character and nature so that we don't commit the same crimes that got us in trouble in the first place. You understand that? That makes sense? And so we are justified in God's eyes. We are in right standing with God because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so with that being said, it should give us a confidence. It should give us assurance that we will never have to pay the penalty for our sins that we have been forgiven by Christ's measure, so measure uh, by Christ's merit. So what does that mean for me? What should I do about that, Pastor? Paul says you should rejoice. 
Paul says you should be happy that God did not give you the outcome that you deserve. God, God says you should be happy that my son stood in your place, although he was innocent. He took on your punishment on the cross so that you can walk free. We should rejoice about that. If nothing you planned happened in 2019, you should be glad that God saved you and that you are right with God. If somebody broke up with you, you need to be happy that you are right with God. If you got laid off from your job, you need to be happy that you are right with God. If you are broken and have no money, you need to be happy and have joy that you are right with God. Right theology gives you right perspective. Right theology gives you right perspective. We as Christians should have joy. And we know that Christian joy is not based on external stuff. It's based on internal things. Theologian John Stott had this to say about Christians. He said, we should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around the place with a dropping hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No, we rejoice in God. Then every part of our life becomes suffused with glory. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God and Christian living a joyful service of God. So come, let us rejoice in God together. So when we think about God's justice and the way he sees us and he declares us righteous, our only response should be to worship and to have joy. But why are so many of us so sad? If you don't remember this, justification. Just as if I had never sinned. That's how God treats you and I. Just as if we had never sinned. And Paul says that we should rejoice over that. And here's why we should rejoice because being a believer merits us certain benefits. Being a believer gives us certain benefits. And the first thing that the text tells us in chapter in verses one, verses one through two, actually, it tells us one of the things that we get is we have peace with God. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we now have peace with God. The root of our rejoicing is that we have peace with God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, peace. Like when I say I feel a peace about it or when I go and take this new job, I feel a peace about it. Or when I meet this person and I want to know if I need to be if we could be friends or not, I feel a peace about it. Or we put ourselves in a predicament and we wait for this feeling of peace. That's not necessarily biblical peace. Biblical peace rests in the reality of our relationship with God. And so Paul is saying that when we are justified, there was peace, but there's peace between us and God. There is now an authentic and genuine fruitful relationship that we have with God. And here's why we can't appreciate it, because we think before we got saved that we had, we had this neutral position with God, that before we got saved, it was just us doing our own thing and God was minding his own business and we were minding our own business. That's not how God works. If you were not a friend of God, you were an enemy of God. The Bible says that we were enemies of the cross, that we hated God because of our sin. We were at odds with God. We were at enmity with God, enmity with God. And so when Christ is on the cross on our behalf, God pours out that hatred that he has for us and our sin on his son on the cross. And so now, instead of being enemies, we are now friends with God in a friendly relationship. And so our relationship with God is because we have peace with God. And the last person you want as your enemy is God. Your boss might not like you. That's all right. But you want to make sure God likes you. That's the most important thing to know that you are not an enemy of God, but you are a friend with God. And we have a peaceful, close, intimate relationship with God. But how many of you know there's a, there's a second benefit? Because when you have peace 
peaceful relationship with the person, you typically have access to that person. So it says we obtain this access through him by faith. We obtain this access. It is a beautiful thing that we have access to the living God, that, that we don't stand as a, at a distance from God, that, that God is not this deity or this being in the sky that we can't get in touch with, that this figment of our imagination that we can't see, this agnostic view that maybe he's there, maybe he's not. I'm not sure. Can you prove it? I, can't, I don't have no proof. No, we as believers know that God is real, but we also have an audience with God. Because of our relationship, we can go to God whenever we want to go to God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through our grandmother. We don't have to go through anybody. We have direct access to God anytime that we want. That is a real relationship. But here's the thing about relationships like that. They go both ways. And oftentimes, we want it to go one way. We want access to God, but we don't always want him to have access with us. But it has to go both ways. So we are... Friends of God in this beautiful relationship that is not one-sided. I think about a family member of mine that I called out in the first service. I probably should have done that. A family member of mine that shall remain nameless. Because of social media, they think that they are actually friends with everybody. So if you get a friend request from this person, y'all friends for real. Now, some people live in this idea that if we're friends on Facebook, that means we're real friends in real life. But how many know there are people on Facebook, on your, that are friends with you on Facebook that if they showed up at your door, you're not opening your door? Right? Because that's not real friendship. But real friendship is based on access, that we can show up at each other's house and show up at each other's doors. That's real friendship. It's not one-sided. There's not this admiration on one side. But when we enter into a relationship with God, it is a relationship where we have real intimate access, where there are no real barriers there, that we can go to the throne of grace to obtain mercy in our time of need. That's a beautiful thing, that people like you and I have an audience with God, and that is one of the benefits. And here's a beautiful thing. We have this benefit, but we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We, we don't deserve it. We stand, what Paul says, we, we stand in this grace. We stand in this grace. This is what happens when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with God where you have peace with God and you have access with God. But this has nothing to do with us. This is all God's doing. This is God's divine favor towards his children, that he grants us the capability to come before him and put our request before God. But here's the question thing most of us don't take advantage of it and that can be look we look no further than our own prayer life and we only go to God when it gets bad enough or if we want something when God is like I want to enjoy you every day if you have the energy to send a good morning text with some heart emojis to somebody can you say good morning to me can I get the first of your day can you acknowledge me can we talk about your day? Can we talk when you're standing in the mirror brushing your teeth? Can we talk in the shower? Can, can we talk in the car on the way to work? Do you, do you call other people and complain first or do you come to me? Because the truth of the matter is, whoever you're complaining to don't really have as much power as I do to fix what you're complaining about. That, 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 that only comes with me. And so God wants to enjoy a relationship with you and I, and this is something that we can have joy about, that, that although I am a sinner, God has made me righteous 
put me in a right relationship with him, said I can come to talk to him anytime I want. I don't have to stand and wait in the line. I don't have to wait for him to respond to my text. He picks up when I call him. He never sends me straight to voicemail. He's never too busy, and I don't take advantage of it. I should be rejoicing that God actually wants to talk to me, and I can cast my cares on him. If I don't have anything else, I have God. That is a beautiful thing that we need to realize as Christians. And this is something that we have now, but it gets even better in the future. And so Paul says we have this hope, this hope of glory. What Paul is talking about is that in this life, there will be distractions in our relationship with God. Because of sin, there will be distractions in our relationship. There will be times where we are tempted to walk away from God. There will be times where we will go long bouts and periods before we talk to God. There will be times where we disappear away from church. There will be times where we question what we believe all because of what happens in this life. But there will come a day and a time where sin will be no more. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more drama. There will be no more crazy stuff going on in the world. And we can fellowship with God uninterrupted in heaven. And that's something that's beautiful that we should hope for. But we as Christians get so caught up in here and now that we forget to put our hope on what is to come. Do you know that that, that life gets better than this? That we put so much hope in what's going to happen in this life. Am I going to get married? Am I going to have kids? What kind of car am I going to drive? What kind of house am I going to buy? Do you know that if you get none of that, your hope is still good because your hope is on what is to come in the future? That we will live, there'll be a day and a time where there ain't no need for hospitals anymore? That there'll be a never day where you don't have to punch in a clock anymore? That you will just be able to spend time with God? That kids won't get sick anymore? That people will not die anymore? That is what we should be hoping for. And so Paul says, now that you know that, you rejoice. You rejoice in that. But you don't just rejoice in that. I think Paul lost his mind here. He says we also rejoice in our afflictions. See, this is when I was reading this, I almost got off the boat with Paul. I like, Paul, I was with you about the hope of the glory of the future. But, Paul, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure about this one. But Paul says we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character, or your Bible may say tested character, or it just may say character. And character produces hope, and that hope doesn't put us to shame because the Holy Spirit has been poured to our hearts. So he talks about this idea of rejoicing in our afflictions, and I'm sure they read this, and they probably were thinking, Paul has no idea of what we've been through. Paul has no idea that we are under Roman oppression. Paul has no idea that we we as Christians have left everything to follow this Jesus. Paul must not know that we are being persecuted by simply being followers of Jesus Christ. Paul must not know that we've lost a lot, that we are impoverished because we decided to follow Jesus. Paul must not know that there are sicknesses that come along with this life. Paul must not be aware that there have been many setbacks, some of them financial. Paul must be unaware of what we're going through. But I think Paul knows something that we don't know. And Paul knows this, that even in your afflictions, you can rejoice because your pain is not purposeless. That, 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 that as a believer, you may go through something, but you're not just going through it just to go through it. There is something that is working on the inside of you, and that's what Paul is getting at. Paul is not saying that, that you take on this masochistic way of being, and you think, and you look for suffering, and you look for pain, and you look for things to go wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when it happens, and it will happen in this Christian life, when they do go wrong, you don't have to fret. You can actually rejoice, not because things bad are happening, but because of what God is doing through you while they are happening. 
God is saying you can rejoice even when you have setbacks. You can rejoice even when things go wrong because we have our hope in Jesus. And in this hope, he is doing something in our lives. So when we have affliction, we need to see them through the lens of spiritual growth as Christians. That, that these afflictions are making us look more like Jesus. And he says this affliction produces something called endurance. Endurance, stick-to-itiveness, being able to stay under pressure and not run from it. This thing that gives us this spiritual fortitude as we go through it. This is what endurance is. If you remember, we started off the year talking about endurance. The first sermon that we preached in 2019 was Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 that said this, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What he's saying is that sometimes when you're going through things, the thing that you should not do first is try to run and get, from, get away from it. But because we don't like pain, we look for out as soon as we get into something. We look for out because it's too much. It's too much pressure. And we tell, if we ask any questions, the question that we ask God is, how much longer? As opposed to asking God, why? God, what are you, what are you, I don't want to be here. Let me, let me be honest with you, God, since you know everything. Let me, let me be honest with you. I, I, don't, I don't care for this, but why I'm here, Lord, what is it about me that you're trying to get out of me? What, what is it about my character that needs to be improved while I'm, while I'm in this season? What, what are you trying to teach me while I'm dealing with this season of lack? Are you trying to show me that you're actually a provider? Like, like while, I'm, while I'm not feeling well in my body, are you, are you trying to prove to me that, that you're a healer, so therefore I need to trust you? What, what are you trying to show me in this? What, what, are you, what, what are you doing when you put me in these situations when I can't get myself out of it? What are, are you teaching me to lean and depend on you? Because it says this about endurance. Endurance produces proven character. I like it that it doesn't say just character. It says proven character or tested character. You don't know who you are until you've been tested. The real you is not the you that has all the money in the bank. The bill paid you, that ain't the real you. The relationship at peace you, that's not the real you. The ideal job you, that ain't you. The walking across, across the graduation stage, that ain't the real you. The real you is the real you when you get yourself in a situation and you don't want to be there and you got to stay there and exhibit the fruit of the spirit. That's the real you. Whoever comes to the surface during adversity is the real you. And God is saying, I put you in some stuff. I make you stay here for a while so that you can see that your faith is real. Because what happens is a lot of people walk this aisle, come down to the altar, give their self away, apparently to God. And then when things get tough, they walk away from God first. You don't know that you're really following Jesus unless you got to follow him while you're in pain. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This is what he means when he's saying proven character. It, is a, it has the idea of being uh, in the refiner's fire, the same way they put silver and gold in a fire, and in the fire it removes impurities. So maybe God ain't trying to kill you. Maybe God ain't trying to kill your dreams. Maybe God is trying to make you look like him. What's God's will for my life? That's what I'm going to find out in 2020. 
Find out God's will for my life. God's will for your life is to look like Jesus. It does not matter if you, I'm not hating. If you get the job of your dreams, praise God. I want you to. I want you to. We need Christians everywhere. I want you to be as successful as possible. But if you get the success and it affects your character and makes you a bad witness, God rather not have it. God rather keep you in a place and you look more like him because that's real character. The goal is to look like Jesus. Theologian Charles Hodge calls it tried integrity. Tried integrity. The real you is the one that responds to hardship. And here's the beautiful thing. He says that proven character, that proven character, that, that proven character that, that he talks about, it leads to something. It produces something. It produces a hope. Proven character produces hope. Why would that produce, why is proven character producing hope? If you go through something that could have broken you or turned you away from God and it didn't and you survived it and you're still here, that's proof that God is with you. That's proof that you should have hope in the future. That's proof that God changed you for the better through a situation that should give you hope for the future that he's coming back finally to make it all right. If God got you through it this time, made you better after you came through something that should have killed you and destroyed you, that's proof positive that God's power was with you all along. Rather than casting doubt on God when we go through stuff, when we get through it, it should actually make our affections for God and increase our certainty all the more. We should know that God is working something out. Every affliction, temptation, suffering, hardship, setback that we survive and draws us closer to God and makes us more like him is proof positive that our hope for future glory is certain. Our weakness magnifies God's power. It is proof that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at his return so hope hope is like a muscle I don't like the gym I don't like the gym just being honest the older I get I, I, the more I don't don't like it because it's this stiffness that sets in that's whack when you get older you got a bed stuff be cracking you need WD-40 for your joints I got up off the floor the other day, my whole body, blah, 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 blah. I said, what? I thought somebody let off firecrackers in the living room. It was my kneecaps and my elbows. Look what is happening to me. But hope is like a muscle. If you don't use it, it's going to be useless. You got to work it out. You, you have to work it out. But, but this biblical hope, I think we have a, 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 a twisted view of hope. Paul says this hope Verse 5, he says, this hope will not disappoint us. It, it won't disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He says it won't disappoint us. See, we don't understand that because we're accustomed to false hope or deceptive hope, things that are not sure. We put our hope in our resume. We put our hope in our job. We put our hope in our boss. We put our hope in our spouse. We put put our hope in our kids. We put our hope in our money, things that are fleeting, things that could turn on you at the drop of a hat. But God's hope is different than that. But oftentimes, because we have the wrong idea of hope, we get hurt. Therefore, Proverbs 13 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We place our hope in money. The Proverbs also tells us, Proverbs eleven seven 7 tells us, hope placed in wealth vanishes. It goes away. That, that's false hope. But Ephesians paints an even worse picture. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul said this. He says, before Christ, there was a time where you were without hope and God. That's horrible if you were without hope and God, but that was their plight. But the hope in God is certain. It is sure. It is a guarantee. It's not something that we have to hope that will happen. It is a sure guarantee. Like, like you have to know this as a believer. If not, life will be crazy. If you're not certain that Jesus is coming back, then you need to change your theology. Because oftentimes we live as if he's not. We live as if he's not. But we can have hope in him because his hope is anchored in love. The hope we have in God is anchored in love and nothing, nothing can detach us from God loving us. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 35 through 9. I love this. He asked the question, Paul says, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Paul is literally asking the question, if things are going wrong, does God still love me? And here's what Paul says. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And Paul said this, I don't doubt. He says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears, or today, nor worries, or tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Nothing can stop God from loving you once you are his. I don't know why people won't fall in love with Jesus. That is the craziest thing ever. Who don't want to love like this? But people in the world will go searching for love for anywhere, that love that can be broken, a love that can be separated. But when God loves his children, it is a faithful, unending love that never ends. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing that God can love us like this. Notice it says that the love of God for us, not our love for him. Because our love for him, depending on how we feel that day, is the kind of love that God's going to get. But even in your rebellious nature, God still loves you. Because his love is grounded in something that I don't think that we realize. His love is grounded in an action that he took. See, God says he loves us. It's not just words for him. God's love is actionable. Where do I know that God loves me, Pastor? Look no further than the cross. Look no further than the cross. I love it. Look what it says in verse 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That be you and I. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the coldest scripture in the Bible. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's absolutely crazy. That's insane in the membrane that while we're at our worst, God still loved us. 
God still loved us and loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to die for us when we were utterly helpless and couldn't do anything about our situation. We were enemies of God and his wrath was breathing down our neck and we were about to get pummeled by his wrath. And God loved us so much that he did something about it. And he sends his son. But see, we don't appreciate it because we often think, oh, you mean it was just us against God? It was us against God. No. It was also God against us. God wasn't indifferent towards your sin. He had to do something about it. Something had to be done about it. If you've been to elementary school and you went to the kind of school that I went to, there were bullies at your school. This whole new no bullying, that's new. No book, that's new. Bullying came with the elementary school back in the day. You know how Fisher-Price says items sold separately? No, bullies came included. Bullies came included at my school. So there's a thing we had called PE, physical education. And at Havana Elementary School, this is where I went to elementary school, there were bullies there. Bullies were present. They never took a day off. My school was the only school where bullies got perfect attendance. But that's besides the point. It was okay for you to have an issue with the bully because of what he was doing to other people. You can complain about the bully. You can, like, man, that bully, he should stop picking on people. That was okay if you kept that to yourself. The problem became when you became the target of the bully's hateful affections. And he did this to you. And he said, 3 o'clock. For you younger millennials, y'all don't know, 3 o'clock was a death sentence. 3 o'clock was either the greatest time on earth or it was the worst time. It meant time to get out of school and go home, watch some whatever you watched on TV, whatever. Or if you, there was a bully in your school, 3 o'clock meant when I get off this bus or after school, it's on and popping. And the worst thing could happen, these bullies are big these days. It's a 6 foot 3, 250 pound 8th grader. Because you know these kids are large. I don't know what's happening. Kids used to be four feet when I was growing up. Kids are six foot two in the third grade. Now, why? What is happening? What are people eating these days? Mr. Chicken, all right. <laughs> but when you're a small kid like me, I had a crazy daddy, so it didn't affect me. Everybody knew my daddy. But if you were a four foot kid and this kid, pointing you out, and you call to your friends, your friends want nothing to do with you. That's not a good situation, because you know you got to deal with the wrath of this bully who's two times your size. He's going to beat you up and take your lunch money. And you're going to get embarrassed in front of all your friends. And it is a thing where you are trembling in your seat, wondering, how am I going to get out of this situation? But there's nothing you can do about it. And all you know is you're going to get pummeled. And we tend to think that, bless you, praise God. We tend to think that prior to Jesus, that God was indifferent. God was the bully that was waiting to pummel us. And it wasn't because we were innocent, but we were in the wrong. Someone stepped in and saved us from the punishment.
That's what Jesus did for us. And Paul says, because of this, because he was willing to stand in our place. Remember Isaiah 53 where it says that he was pierced for our rebellion? He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, but we are healed by his wounds. Jesus took on the punishment that we deserved. Paul says, when you think about this, when you think about what Christ did for you, that's not a reason to complain. That's a reason to rejoice. You should wake up every morning saying, God is not perfect, but I thank you. God, I don't have everything that I think I want or think I need, but Lord, I thank you. God, you are good and your mercy endure forever. We got to start appreciating God, not for just for tangible stuff, but we got to thank God for the peace that brings that he brings. We got to thank God for the access that we have. We got to thank God for things that, 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 are, uh, that are intangible that we can't get anywhere else. Thank God that he loves me. Thank God that he has saved me. We ought to rejoice over that. We've taught Christian these days that you only shout when you get a financial breakthrough and we undermine the gospel but what happens what does it look like for Christians to have the joy of the Lord every day in spite of circumstances what would the church look like what would the church look like if we walked in eyes wide open, heart wide open, hands wide open to worship God? Not because things in our lives are going perfect, but because God is perfect. So no matter where you fall on the spectrum for this year, God is still good. Things didn't work out. God is still good. If you had your heart broke, God is still good. If you lost your job, God is still good. If you got sick this year, God is still good. If a family member got lost this year, God is still good. If it didn't work out for you, God is still good. If you had a setback this year, God is still good. If you went through a divorce, God is still good. If you didn't get everything that you hoped and dreamed for, God is still good. If you found an eviction notice, on your door. God is still good. If you had something about to be repossessed, God is still good. If you had a week where you didn't know where the next meal was coming from, God is still good. We have to start getting joy over what God has already done for us, not waiting for some tangible thing to happen in the future. We can shout and rejoice over God for what he has done in the here and now. There's a reason to rejoice. So anybody can be upset, disgruntled, mad, unhappy, angry, not feeling it. That's not the mark of a Christian. The mark of the Christian is who you are in spite of those feelings. I am loved by God. You are loved by God. Not because of you, but because of him. So there's still a reason to rejoice. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.